Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Hey Matt, let's talk cheese. Yes, Eliza, the holiday season is here, which means one thing, it's cheese board season. One of my favorite cheeses to put out is Parmigiano-Reggiano, a cheese that is in a class of its own. A few years ago, I was able to visit a Parmigiano-Reggiano dairy outside Parma, and I have to say, it was a near-holy experience. I got to see the cheesemakers in action, and it was clear that there's only one way in making this amazing cheese, and it only happens in Italy. I agree. I love putting out hunks of Parmigiano-Reggiano to pair with holiday cocktails or drizzled with balsamic vinegar. Add a wedge of Parmigiano-Reggiano to your holiday spread and elevate your hosting experience. Look for Parmigiano-Reggiano in the premium cheese case of your favorite grocery store or deli, and make sure the full name is listed on the package and the unique rind dotted with the Parmigiano-Reggiano name. Say it with us, Parmigiano-Reggiano. Visit www.parmigianoreggiano.us slash holiday for more holiday inspiration. You can check out the link in our show notes as well. We kind of wanted to, you know, like say that like making it doesn't necessarily have to mean like one thing or another. It doesn't have to mean like rampant financial success. We are just trying to say like to build something and to, you know, support your family, like in New York City is a great success. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, we have a great conversation with Alice Luo and Elaine Mao, two staffers at the New York City-based nonprofit Send Chinatown Love. As the name suggests, the volunteer-run organization provides financial and resource-based aid to NYC's Asian businesses. Alice and Elaine have also put out one of my absolute favorite books of the year, Made Here, Recipes and Reflections from NYC's Asian Communities. It's a super savvy book beautifully photographed and featuring recipes from some of New York's most institutional restaurants, including Chodongol, Punjabi Deli, and Peking Duck House. And best of all, 100% of net proceeds of this cookbook will go back to Send Chinatown Love's community-building efforts. You should really buy a copy of this book now, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. We're here with Shalita Harris, producer. Hey, what's up, Shalita? Hey, Matt. How are you today? I'm great. And we have some special guests in the studio who were introduced shortly. I bet you have been following Send Chinatown Love for several years, and you, you needed to have them in the studio, and, and you needed our listeners to, uh, to, to be introduced to them. And I so appreciate it because I love this new book and this organization. So will you please introduce our guests? Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. Uh, you know, I've been following the incredible works in Chinatown Love has been doing in the New York City area for the past three years now, uh, pretty much or since early on in the pandemic. And I'm thrilled to have Alice Luo and Elaine Mao with us here today to talk about it. So Alice, Elaine, this is Taste. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. 
Great. So Alice, let's ask you first, how did you guys meet? What is your, let's, let's go into that, Alice. How did I meet Elaine? Yeah, yeah. So I've been with Sun Chinatown Love since 2020. During the pandemic days, I first joined the engineering team. And later I did people in operations. And one of the duties that I had to do with that role was to onboard some volunteers. And one of that volunteer was Elaine. And I found out that Elaine lives two blocks away from me. And we've become very close friends, uh, not only because of proximity, but with this project that we've been working on for almost two years. Yes. And actually, it was quite a long time um, after we met virtually that we met in person, of course, because we met virtually, I believe, in 2020. And then it wasn't until maybe 2021 at a party at Winnie's that we first met face to face. And yeah, like Alice said, we have just become super close. And this project has been like with the two of us as well as everybody on it, like some of like our closest friends now that we get to work with. I feel like by the end of this interview, you'll probably be sick of me saying how much I love this book and how much of a joy it is to have both of you here. Uh, and, you know, I've seen the advanced copy. So I've seen so many of the recipes and the photography and the art. And I've also seen so much of the wonderful press. You are on Bon Appetit and Vogue's Best Fall Cookbooks list, which is just such a feat for an indie. Um, so it really is just great to be talking to you today. But before we get into the cookbook, I would love to ask you, where should we be eating in Chinatown right now? Yeah, so Elaine and I, we both live in the Fujini side of Chinatown near the Lower East Side. So some of our favorite restaurants will be located on East Broadway, which is the main artery of that part of Chinatown. For me, I like to bring our friends to Kiku Cafe. It's a no-frills restaurant where they make the dumplings on the spot and they cook it for you. And very delicious. Uh, serves the community. A lot of people from family, kids, uh, some of the city office workers go there. Another place I really like that's more popular and in the main part of Chinatown would be Uncle Lou's. They serve a lot of classic Cantonese cuisine. My family's Cantonese, so I don't really have that much Cantonese food that often because my family's back in Australia. So this actually reminds me of home. And one of the things I really love about Uncle Lou's is their steamed fish that comes with the scallions and ginger and also the complimentary dessert at the end. That's always the best. <laughs> and how about yourself, Elaine? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Alice mentions that we both live on or near East Broadway because independently we both chose East Broadway businesses as sort of like our first go-tos. So mine is... There is this fantastic rice noodle cart that parks on the corner of East Broadway and Rutgers, right by the East Broadway F. And she sells rice rolls and congee, which is my favorite. Um, and she kind of recognizes me at this point as that girl that's always buying congee. And if she's sold out, she'll just like motion me away um, in a very kind way, but just kind of like a sorry, not today. And she does always sell out by around noon. So you're left to get there early and then... Aside from that, because um, my family comes from the northern part of China, so for a lot of, like, regional Chinese cuisines, um, the go-to neighborhood is really flushing. So, like, a couple months ago, my parents were visiting New York for the first time since, like, the 90s, and my mom 
had like this huge list of places that she wanted to go in Flushing. And then we got there and she had like five places that she wanted to go. And we only managed to get to maybe like three of them before we were all just like too stuffed. But obviously like New World Mall in the basement is always a really exciting adventure. Just like walking around and buying whatever looks good. What, what did your mom think about New York after not having visited it since the 90s? That is a great, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I was really nervous about that trip because my mom hates New York. <laughs> or that's what she always said. Um, like, they... Oh they there's love- Californians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they moved to New Jersey when they first came to the United States and they would come to New York. And I just think they had, like, a really bad time of it back then because it used to be really different and they've, like, gotten their car broken into and, like, gotten their things stolen and just, you know... It used to be very different, and we moved out to California, which is where I mostly grew up. And, yeah, it's, you know, but then they came, and they just, like, they loved it. Like, they were so excited. I booked them a hotel, like, outside of Manhattan's Chinatown, and my mom, like, she got a haircut. She got her eyebrows done. She, like, looked up all of these places that she wanted to go. We went to, like, six restaurants in Flushing in the course of, like, a day. We brought extras to take home. Like, it was, yeah, they loved it. And it seems like this trip was maybe a little more meticulously planned. Like, I know when I have someone visiting and I have a point of view on a place or I'm trying to convince you on a city that I like, I sort of have a list like, we need to hit all of these places. Were there top spots that you needed to make sure that your parents went as you were trying to change their opinion of New York in 2023? Definitely. I was... Working on the sort of like, I was working on the list for weeks and I was like crowdsourcing recommendations from friends and trying to think like, oh, will they like this? Will they not? There were things that like I thought would definitely impress them. You know, we walked along the waterfront. We went up to like the new Hudson Yards area, which is quite impressive. And, you know, I think very modern, like a lot of Asian tourists like it because it looks like the very modern parts of Asia with like all of the really crazy architecture and stuff. Um, I mean, Flushing was a big one just because I think even in, like, this is something that we'll get into in the cookbook as well, but, like, even in California, we live in, like, the Bay Area, which has a lot of really great Asian food, but you can't get the same kinds of, like, regional cuisines that you can get in New York. So they were just really excited to, like, get a taste of some things that they haven't had, like, for potentially, like, years or decades. And so, Alice and Elaine, you both touched on uh, that you're both originally from other places, Australia and California, respectively. So what exactly is your background outside of the work you do for Sin Chinatown Love? Yeah, so my background is in data and economics. I was a data analyst uh, in the Statistical Bureau back in Australia And in the U.S., I've done more engineering work as well as some freelance work here and there in the creative and entertainment industry. As of recently, I was in the hospitality industry, and I feel that that has allowed me to get a greater understanding of the restaurants and small businesses and seeing those challenges firsthand. And as for me, um, yeah, as I mentioned, I mostly grew up in California, and then I do have a like a background in journalism and storytelling. It's something I started in 
high school and then did throughout college. And then I went to grad school, which is actually when I first moved to New York to go to uh, grad school for journalism. And I was, uh, yeah, after that, I moved back out to San Francisco and I ended up working in also as like in software engineering and um, one of my other long-term passions besides like storytelling is music. So I've been working in music recommendation algorithms for the last like probably seven years or so. Wait, you're the person who gets like <laughs> XTC onto my playlist. <laughs> yes. Um, you're welcome if you like it. And uh, you... Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Amazing. What a cool job. Um, let's talk about March 2020. Um what were you observing um, in your community when you you came together and and decided send Chinatown Love needed to happen? Yeah, so this actually started. Well, that was a long time ago, right? Yeah, March right. twenty twenty three years ago. So what we were noticing in the Asian communities, even one month before March twenty twenty, so in February, that there were a lot of businesses and restaurants in Chinatown that were already shutting down. Or if you would go to their storefront, it would be posters of them shutting down because of hardships. And Send Chinatown Love's founder, Justin McKibben, was skateboarding from his office in Soho to his Chinatown apartment. He wanted to pick up some dumplings from his favorite place, which is the now closed iconic spot, 88 Lanzau. And that's where he noticed that they were closed down. And through these observations and him being raised in a family where it was all about love, compassion, and food, he had a great conversation with his uncle who gave him the advice of be a lifter than a leaner. And from that advice, he made a call to action on his Instagram where asking, hey, there is some, what can we do for these businesses in Chinatown or in Asian communities? There is a disproportionate amount um, impact on these communities because of COVID. Uh, it could be anti-Asian sentiment, a lack of technological um, or language skills. What can we do? And from that Instagram post, I garnered so many responses and they ended up creating an organization uh, being sent Chinatown Love where they would come up with creative ways to firstly fundraise for these businesses that were experiencing rent increases or lost revenue and trying to understand our merchants and what is the best way that they can support them. So the Gift a Meal program was conceived in May 2020 and that was to address two groups. One was to bring business and support to these small mom and pop shops and restaurants. And a lot of the initial uh, things that we did was the fundraising cash relief. But a lot of these small businesses didn't want to take the money. Uh, they'd rather provide their services. So this was a perfect solution where we can pay them to provide those meals. And that impacts another group, which is underserved, food insecure, low-income community members. So we pay our merchants and our restaurants to 
uh, prepare these meals or grocery items or other resources. And we partner with some of our um, distributors who are community organizations, nonprofits, food pantries, and we work with them very closely. They are so integral to our Gift a Meal program. And we identify, well, what are our distributors looking for? What are their needs? What are their demographics? And then we match them with our merchants uh, on a, multiple factors such as geographical proximity, dietary requirements, or even prioritizing merchants who may need a boost in revenue. And then those meals and items get distributed to those communities. So we've been serving Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. And this year, um, well, since 2020, we have distributed over 60,000 meals and items. And that's been around circling over half a million dollars back into Asian businesses. It's amazing. Elaine, let me ask you the significance of the title made here. I'd like to get a sense of, of how the organization uh, decided to write a cookbook, which, again, I echo Shalia. It, it is a beautiful book, and I am buying one when, I'm, when I leave here. It's, it's amazing. It's, a, it's really, really terrific. Um, so what, what does made here mean to you? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And I think first maybe I can explain sort of like how we came to wanting to write this cookbook and sort of like how that fits in with our other work. So like, as Alice mentioned, there we do like a lot of fundraising and we have our gift a meal GAM program. But I think one thing as we are now, I guess, almost four years from the founding of Send Chinatown Love is pivot into, I mean, we're going to like sustain these efforts, but still like think more on not only the present, but also securing the future of these communities and how can we kind of build something that has like, I guess, a lasting like legacy and also full like furthers our mission of helping our businesses connect to the community. So going into that, like this cookbook was one thing that was, I guess, came out of like a lot of like conversations and it sort of had like a previous, like, I guess, a predecessor in our zine, which was called Send Chinatown Love Letters. Um, And then a lot of people were saying like, oh, we wish there were more recipes in this. So that was really like where that idea came about. And then the cookbook, we knew we wanted to have like a really big like storytelling component and also talk about not just Chinatowns. I mean, I do want to point out like, even though our name is Sunshine Town Love, a lot of the businesses we work with are not technically in the bounds of Chinatown. And with this book, we really wanted to expand even further and pull in businesses from cuisines that we hadn't previously worked with and just really, you know, paint as, I guess, vibrant a picture as we could of just the diversity and how just how incredible the New York City um, Asian food scene is. So uh, to now answer your question, um, <laughs> the title made here, actually, we, for the first like year and a half of the project, we could not come up with a name for the cookbook. And 
You know, for so long we were just calling it the Sunshine Town Love Cookbook, but we knew we, we didn't. We were calling it Cookbook 2022 yeah. and then <laughs> Cookbook 2023. As, as cookbook deadlines go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. All of our early project documents are named like that. But we knew we didn't want to just call it the Sunshine Town Love Cookbook because we really wanted a name that encompassed a lot of like the different cuisines and the different neighborhoods that we have in our book. And we felt that, um, you know, we needed something that was just like really inclusive. And so we spent months with our team and with like the Sunshine Town Love organization trying to land on the perfect name. We had a voting process. We had name submissions. We had in-person title workshopping sessions. Um, and ultimately, I guess, if I can quote the foreword of the book. So, uh, quote, it's about more than just making food. It's about making a home, making a life, and making it in New York City. And so uh, the genesis of this title initially is, I think, hearing that Jay-Z and Alicia Keys song, Empire State of Mind, which obviously references the Frank Sinatra song about you know, if, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And I think we felt that was really apt because this book is a celebration of all of the accomplishments that these people and this community has made. And it also, like, we kind of wanted to, you know, like, say that, like, making it doesn't necessarily have to mean, like, one thing or another. It doesn't have to mean, like, rampant financial success because... A lot of our businesses in reality are still struggling or facing uncertainty. And even while we were making the book, three of them closed, I think. So, but we are just trying to say, like, to build something and to, you know, support your family, like in New York City is like a great success. And I really love that you brought up that forward because I think it was really impactful in the ways in which it speaks to the framework for the community, right? Where it's like talking about these businesses that are here, but also speaking to their history and their culinary traditions and the Asian diaspora as a whole. And I think that was really lovely. And sort of to continue our conversation about these communities, one of the things you say um, is that many of the restaurants and chefs in your book had never done media before, right? Or that they'd never contributed a recipe before. And whether that was due to discomfort or language barriers, you were able to convince a lot of these restaurants to collaborate with you in this way. And so I'd love to ask you, how did you begin to build and partner with some of these restaurants and their staffs to select recipes that would best represent their restaurants and culinary histories? Yeah, Alice, do you want to talk a little bit about like the Seller Empathy team and kind of how we built these relationships? Yeah, so the Cell Empathy team, which has been the, one of the first teams when first uh, first Send Chinatown Love started, is reaching out to merchants and trying to understand what are the needs and what can we best do to support you. So we've had these long uh, and strong relationships for over two years with over um, 50 merchants that we've worked with. And because of this trust and great relationship that we were able to develop. Um, I would say that one of the strengths that we have as an organization is coming in with compassion and also understanding of their culture. Some of us can speak their language. Um, some of us um, come from immigrant backgrounds where we are able to relate to their livelihoods. So I think coming with that mindset of empathy has allowed us to really 
strengthen those relationships and be open to asking them, would you participate in our cookbook? We would, it would be such an honor if we could hear more about your stories and let other people know because there are a lot of underrepresented uh, cuisines and small businesses out there because they are not as tech savvy or don't have the PR or language skills. So that's Seller Empathy, one of the most important teams in uh, San Chinatown Love. I think, Elaine, you can. Yeah. So Alice spoke about, you know, we have these relationships with more than 50 businesses. And so for the cookbook, we have 43 businesses. And out of those, 18 of them are from relationships that we already had. And that was really great because there was already that level of trust and understanding. And we had been working with them for a while. And I think the most important thing that we tried to do in this project is prioritize making this a positive experience for all of the businesses that we're working with. So some of that is, you know, in terms of just like meeting them where they are or like where they're comfortable. So like if you're reading the book, you'll probably notice some of the stories are incredibly long and go into extreme personal detail. And some of them, you know, you really don't get a ton, but you do get to hear a little bit about like the food or about like their thoughts on food or community. And it's really just a matter of, you know, how much they're comfortable sharing and just trying to work around that. And I think for the recipes, we also primarily let the restaurants actually dictate what recipe they feel comfortable sharing with um, a wider audience and what maybe like what they feel really like represents their culture or what are they proud to show off. And a lot of the businesses, you know, immediately were like, this is the recipe. Like, mm. this is the one we want. This is the one. So I'm going to start with Alice. Let's talk about some of the recipes and and a little bit first about the process of, of how you are able to, you know, get the recipe down. And then, of course, if there's testing and, and photography. So a little bit about the book production. But then each of you, I'd love to get a couple recipes that just like you love, like you've made or just like something that you just really dig from the book. So we'll start with you, Alice. Yeah, I can talk about the recipe gathering stage, which we thought would take maybe a month or two, actually took over a couple of months, maybe six months. Uh, so we reached out to our restaurants, our seller empathy team. Uh, they did such a great job. And we asked them for a recipe that would best represent their restaurant or their cuisine. Um, ideally, we asked for three. Usually we got one, and so we then would edit or transcribe the recipes. For example, Northern Wang Manju, they don't have any written recipes. This is all. What we did was we went to their basement where they make their dumplings from scratch, and we recorded a video, and Kay, the owner, was describing it in Mandarin, and we had one of our seller empathy members, Jennifer, translate, and Nat probably transcribed the recipe by viewing that video and also Jennifer's translation. Uh, we also did a crowdsourced version of recipe testing where Catherine, um, our recipe tes testing lead and our fulfillment lead, uh, we had all these spreadsheets where we opened up to the greater organization where they could test some of these recipes. And we had a very systematic way of giving feedback and to ensure consistency. Uh, along amongst all of these recipes. Yeah, I love that. 
Um, it almost feels so authentic in the way that those recipes came about. It reminds me of even trying to get recipes from my grandmother who would be like, you know, you just put a pinch of it in. And I'm like, how much is that? And she's like, you know, you just know when it's right. And it seems like creating this book was a little bit of that. Um, which is a wild cookbook uh, writing experience, but it's really lovely all the same. Yeah, that was definitely our experience with a lot of them. And I think it's really funny because that's such a relatable experience for so many people who are trying to get these sort of like passed down recipes, whether it's from like, like usually from their own parents or grandparents and just, yeah, the imprecision and the general like hand waviness of all of it is challenging, but and would you mind telling us a couple of your favorite recipes from the book? Yeah, my favorite recipe would be Hana Makali's panjon. It's the green scallion pancake. And I like that recipe because of my association with us working on the project. It was the last week where we were proofing the cookbook before we sent it to the printer. And we were at Elaine's place um, working from... I don't know, from 7 p.m. to midnight. I think I stayed at 2 a.m. or fell asleep on the couch. But Matt, Elaine's partner, made the Hanamakali Pajon. And I remember we were all ravenously... It was Christoph. Oh, it was Christoph who made it? Christoph helped make it. Yeah, Christoph, one of our other writers. And um, I think I maybe chopped some scallions. But yeah, we, we were like, let's make a recipe from the cookbook. Like, why not? And we were just scoffing the, the Pajon down. It was delicious but it just reminded me of working late at night with some of your friends in college and cramming and but we were just proofing and enjoying the delicious pancake yeah and I will say that is also it is like a delicious recipe and I also personally love it because it's one of the many in our cookbook where it's like a specific like style of jian which is like a Korean pancake and so you can put scallions in it or you can put you know seafood if you want a seafood pancake you can put kimchi you can but like whatever you have in your fridge. So it really is just a great like base recipe. Yeah, Elaine, what's your favorite recipe? <laughs> so I think my favorite recipe, I mean, I do have a lot. Like obviously the easy answer is, oh, it's so hard to pick. It's like choosing a favorite child or whatever. But I do <laughs> You know every cliche in the book. Exactly. <laughs> I hate cliches. Yeah. Um I think one of my favorites, and disclaimer is I didn't actually cook this recipe, but uh, the Pollutenti from Quay Cafe, which is like a steamed rice topped with like a grated coconut filling, is a personal favorite. And I just, I eat that one a lot because I go to Quay Cafe every week. And that's one of the ones where like, maybe I'll never make it because I always just like to go there. And that was like a story that I got to work on and I, I really loved it just because I feel like whenever I go there, it's kind of like reminds me of home a little bit, even though like I'm not Malaysian or anything, but just because the owner like recognizes me every week and if I'm not there, I'll send my boyfriend to go get something for me and she'll be like, where's Elaine? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Kue Cafe is this Malaysian cafe located on the Lower East Side on Eldridge Street and they're only open on the weekends and they change their menu every week and it's everything is made by Veronica, the owner. And it's just, uh, I actually found out about it through Sunshine Town Love. So because did I. Oh, really? 
Yeah, they're like one of the businesses that we work with. And prior to that, I had never even heard of Quay. I didn't know what it was. I wouldn't have thought to go to that random business that's open three days a week. But it's now, near where we live, and we would not, not have yeah. known. Yeah, it's easy to miss, but now it's like a favorite spot. Like, I make sure I can go there every single week. Yeah, and I think that's something I really love about this book in almost the duality and the way that it functions, right? Because I think depending on who you are and where you're coming from and your experiences, some of these recipes and these places are going to be new experiences, you know, that are encouraging you to try new things and to explore and ask questions. Or, you know, if you're coming to this book and perhaps as a Malaysian person, as a Cantonese person, as a Korean person, certain pieces of these recipes are going to be more like coming home. And I really love how you can interact with the book differently depending on where you're coming from. So based on that, I would love to hear what you all think, you know, is the story you're telling about this community through food. And can you share your vision for how some of these recipes are working together in conversation? So for this, I will actually quote Nat Belkov, our creative director for this book, who frequently likes to say, I fell in love with New York through my belly, which I think is just like, you know, I think we were talking about like how he got involved into Sunshine Town Love. And I think it's definitely true. And I think many people feel this way. And I was recently I was on Instagram and, you know, like the Righteous Eats series, Third Places. And I think like it's not a coincidence that so many people's third places are like food establishments of some sort, just because like this is one of the ways that we really like as a community, right, like form bonds and like put down roots and like, as you said, like sort of come home or like find home in a place. And I think as far as like the story that we're telling, one of the things that we really wanted to do with this book was have this really like intimate behind the scenes look, as we say, like as we describe it, I think on our website. And by that, we mean like a lot of people have passed through or really like interacted with like one of these neighborhoods or one of these places in some manner, whether it's like going to Chinatown to eat something or going to Koreatown to get food or do karaoke. But it can be like such a surface level interaction. And I think for a lot of these places that you pass through or walk past on the street, there are such like interesting stories like in terms of like all of the things that have brought them here to this place and like all of the I guess all that they've put into this business and all that they're trying to share with the community and I think that like as a whole like our cookbook has like so many very like disparate cultures and cuisines and if you read it cover to cover which of course we have (laughs) um you start to really see like so many interesting, I guess, lines of influence and crossovers between how different cuisines from different countries um, in Asia and not even like, and not in Asia even. Like I think one of our stories is Cora, which is like an amazing donut and um, pastry place in Queens. They have a huge Instagram following. Yeah, I have not secured their donuts yet, but uh, their founder, Kim, is Filipino and her partner, Kevin, is from Ecuador. And then they were sort of talking about how even like between Ecuador and the Philippines, there are like some similarities in the food just due to like 
both being under Spanish colonization. And so I think that, like, our book tells a lot of interesting things about, like, the history of, like, colonization and migration, all of that shows in the food. So we talked a little bit about, or maybe I talked a little bit about, how, you know, I hope readers will engage and how I plan to engage with your book. Um, But how do you hope home cooks will engage with this book in the Asian culinary traditions that it represents? Um, I think what we're hoping with this set of recipes is that regardless of your skill level or your lifestyle, there is something that can fit into your life. And similar to what we were saying earlier about the pajian, like, There are so many recipes that you can really make your own. And I just think there's a lot of fun to be had there. And we also hope that this will be a gateway to encourage you to further explore some of these cuisines because maybe we only have like one Indonesian uh, restaurant in our cookbook. But if you decide that you really like that recipe, maybe you delve into other books that go deeper or you find a restaurant near you where you can try out like some of the other dishes. Like, we just really hope that this will be like an entry point in so many ways. And Alice, do you want to talk about how it like connects a little bit to the SEL mission or? Yeah, I I can speak to that. One of SEL's mission is to connect businesses with the community and breaking down barriers. I feel that cookbook is sometimes a misleading title or descriptor for our book because It is so rich in narratives and rich photography that I hope it does inspire people from the Asian community to reconnect with their roots or even pick up some home cooking or uh, generational recipes that they might have had. And on the other hand, I hope that others who are not necessarily Asian feel empowered to learn more about different cultures and cuisines. I feel that in New York, it's so overwhelming and there's a lot of hustle and bustle when you're going to a restaurant, you get the food placed in front of you, and maybe you don't think too much about it. And I hope that this gives readers an opportunity to learn more about the people that made the food for them and their stories, their challenges, and their victories. Absolutely. I think that's so beautifully said. And I do want to shout out one piece of the cookbook that I thought was really wonderful is um, at the top of where you get into, you know, the recipes of the book, you have that list of Asian grocers where you can buy some of the ingredients that may not be available at your Whole Foods, at your Trader Joe's, at, you know, wherever you're going to. And just sort of like bringing everything back around to community and supporting community in every single inch of this book. It just seems so well thought out. And, um, you know, you've just made something really incredible. Thank you so much. (laughs) So, you know, getting back to the broader umbrella of Sin Chinatown Love, um, if, you know, people have picked up the cookbook and have gone to your website and are just like looking for other ways to engage with you and to support you, what are the best ways to donate and support Sin Chinatown Love as a whole? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned two great ones, like uh, donating through the website. And I think uh, I should mention all proceeds from the book go to our community building efforts because this is a self-published book. 
Um, and then I guess if you, I mean, you can follow us on Sunshine Town Love on social media. But I think really, like, if you are in New York or if you're just passing through, I think it would be great to see you at some of our in-person events because I think one of the things we're really trying to do is just um, get more of the community, like, back out into these uh, neighborhoods and into these businesses. Yeah. Can you talk about, uh, I've seen on social, you've started doing supper clubs recently. Can you talk about those quickly? Yeah, the supper club features uh, collaboration with some of uh, the more well-known restaurants. We saw there was 88.6 and Potluck Club. Club. Mm -hmm. And a portion of those proceeds does go to send Chinatown Love and as well as some other partners that we work with. And the purpose of these supper clubs is to get people together, meet each other and try out different foods and support our local businesses. That's great. Uh, So, yeah, our last question for you today is... I know you're a New York-based organization, but are you looking to expand outside of, you know, New York City and perhaps into Asian communities and other places? So at the moment, we are focusing on New York City, and we want to emphasize that we are not meant to be the sole solution or have all the answers, and we mainly rely on our collaborations and partnerships with other community organizations within New York, such as UA3, Meals for Unity, Think Chinatown, Flushing Food Collaborative. Um, And these are some of the organizations that we wanted to highlight as well. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, it's also one thing I do want to point out is even though we are uh, working with businesses in New York, our volunteers are actually based everywhere um, around the country. And Some of our volunteers, like our cookbook designer, Tina, did a lot of her design work remotely from New Zealand over the summer. Um, And obviously, like in other communities throughout the country, there are so many other amazing mutual aid organizations that have been doing great work, like both since the pandemic and even beforehand. That's fantastic. Uh, We'll absolutely give some of your partner organizations love as well. So I just want to say thank you so much for being here with us today, and I can't wait to get my copy of Made Here. And I really hope our listeners will be picking up your book as well. Thank you so much. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.